This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. The best laid plan and presentation of the gospel to a person who is lost will have absolutely no effect unless the Holy Spirit of God is meeting with that and working with that. That's why non-believers can read the Bible. That's why there are many non-believers who know the Bible, know very much about the Bible, but it's all head knowledge. The unbeliever has a terminal ignorance of God. They can hear the best laid gospel message and still only have a head knowledge. They have a blindness in their heart of their need to come to God and the coming judgment from God. So much so that they become numb to any type of godly morality. They don't have any type of biblical worldview. Sadly, there are still Christians who don't have a biblical worldview either. The good news is that we can put off the old man and put on the new man. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 17, for part one of our message entitled, The Believer's Walk. I was thinking this week as in the study and preparation for the study, even about our own children. I can remember as a parent, as our own children, learning uh, how to walk. And, you know, as they started at that, you know, uh, I don't know, eight months, nine months age. And as, as parents, you start taking them and you, you want to help them learn how to walk. And when they're first starting, they don't do anything. Uh, the parents grab them by the full weight and we kind of throw them right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot kind of give them that, that feeling of kind of walking, but they're not strong enough to walk at that point in time. They don't have the, the muscle structure and the balance they, they definitely don't have. But after a while, uh, after a few months of working that process with them, practicing with them, and all suddenly they start taking their first steps. And isn't that just adorable, you know, when the little kids take their first steps? And parents always want to get that on video and how heartbreaking, heartbroken parents are when they take those first steps at Aunt Susie's house or over at grandparents' house or something along that line. Well, as they begin walking, you understand that uh, that stage, that age, uh, what we call them are what? Toddlers. Because they're not walking real firmly yet, and they're walking along, and it, there's often many times that they will stumble and fall. And uh, as, as parents, we don't scold them in that stumbling and falling at that point. We encourage them. We say, come on, honey, that's okay. Get back up. Let Daddy help you. Let Mommy help you. And they continue to walk, and many times walking with the firm hand of a parent with them. Well, I want to let you know that our, our kids now, they've gone through the process, and both of them walk very well. They should. They're 39 and 34, but uh, they do very well. But in, in thinking of this, I, I was thinking about the Christian's walk, how you and I as believers, when we first begin our journey in Christ, many times, not for everyone, sometimes we see believers who literally skyrocket in their walk, but Generally speaking, for most believers, there are times at the beginning of our faith where there is this toddling season, and sometimes in our walk in Christ, we stumble, we fall, and 
Sometimes we go back to what we were in the past. And the believer's walk is to always be progressing, always be moving on forward in Christ, to become firm and and, and established and, and balanced in our walk. And I could probably go around the room and ask, you know, how many of you have been in Christ 10 years or 20 years or 30 years? And my guess is that there's a lot of maturity, uh, at least in the number of years for believers in Christ. But the question is, and the thing that we have to keep in mind is, how, how sad it is when we see a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 20 or a 30 who's still stumbling, who's still crawling, who still toddles back and forth. That's not normal. That's not natural. The sad thing is, is I believe it's all too natural or too normal of a situation today in our culture that believers who have been believers for years still are in that toddling stage and so easily to fall back in things. Instead of being mature and strong, and even as Paul says in writing to the church, that by now you ought to be teachers, but you're still babes. You see, it's nothing new that even as believers, we could be years in our walk in the Lord and still stumbling. It's not right. It's not good. But it's not unknown to happen. As we finish this morning, chapter 4, we're going to begin this journey into chapters 5 and, and, and 6 as Paul becomes very clear how we as believers need to be walking. If, if you'll look with me real quickly just in chapter 5, in verse 2 we see that we're to walk in love. And down in verse 8 he says we need to walk as children of light. And then down in verse 15 he says that we need to walk circumspectly or walk walk in wisdom. That's the believer's walk. That's the, that's, that should be the normal. That should be who we are in Christ in a normal situation. But before we get into chapter 5, we need to finish chapter 4, and Paul gives real clear instruction to the believers there how they ought not to walk also. Look with me, if you would, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. As Paul finishes up the section, we've talked about the unity of the believers. We've talked about the diversity within the unity. And now he moves on and speaking of how we ought to be as part of the body of Christ. Verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated, from the life of God, because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Paul's pretty direct as he gives these things. He, he first instructs us that we ought not walk like the unsaved. When he says the rest of the Gentiles, bear in mind what he's speaking to, is he's speaking to a, a, a church body who were primarily made up of Gentiles, just like we have this morning. And when he says, as the rest of the Gentiles, he's in essence saying, we ought not walk like the unsaved. When he speaks of that term, he talks about what their present condition is. And right in the middle of verse 18, he speaks very clearly about what their present condition is. He says that they are alienated from God. 
as a non-believer, they're alienated from God. Before you became a believer, you were alienated from God. Now, he explains that earlier on back in chapter 2 when he speaks again that the non-believers are alienated. They're separated prior to their faith in Christ. And because of that condition of being alienated from God, we see the situation that they find themselves in. He says there in verse 17, and as he moves on, he says that they walk in the futility of their minds. The futility of their minds. Remember last week, uh, we talked a little bit about Star Trek, okay? That was not the main focus of the message, but we did. And I, and I use the phrase of the Borg that says, resistance is futile. Well, here again, he speaks about the futility of their minds. What does that word mean? In, in essence, a direct translation would be here is that their minds are ineffectual, that, that their thinking is not correct. Uh, the King James Version says in the vanity of their minds. It has this idea of their, their, their minds, the whole idea of, of being void of any useful aim or goal. Now I need to stop right here and put a little sidebar on the message to say that I know that there are many non-believers in the world, both today and in the past, who have done many great things for humanity's sake. There are many non-believers who have moved in, in the world in, in many ways that have uh, invented things, who have come up with ideas that have impacted the world in positive ways. But you need to understand, all of those were temporary. All of those were, were only in, in this level. A non-believer is not going to impact things for eternity. A non-believer does not have the ability to move beyond this temporal plane. And when he says that they are useful, that they're, they're the, the futility of their minds, that there's no useful aim, no, no real good goal within the non-believers, understand that Paul is speaking in the spiritual realm. I understand that, and I want you to understand that too. What it is and what he's speaking about is the futility of their minds. It's literally, it is a, a, a waste of that, that God-given rational powers that man is, has built within him that it is on these things that, that are, again, uh, worthless, many times worthless things, many times leading to idolatry. They put things or other people in, in front of God in, in their lives or in the place of God in their lives. One of the versions for that verse says that their thoughts are worthless. And in the spiritual realm, it definitely is. He says also in, in verse 18, he says, having their understanding darkened. Their understanding is, is darkened. Their spiritual cognizant reasoning is beyond them. They cannot understand on a, a spiritual level. In and, and of themselves, they have no ability to be able to understand spiritual things because their understanding is darkened. And I say that to help you to understand that even the best laid plan and presentation of the gospel to a person who is lost will have absolutely no effect unless the Holy Spirit of God is meeting with that and working with that. That's why non-believers can read the Bible. That's why there are many non-believers who know the Bible, know very much about the Bible, but it's all head knowledge. It, it's, it's, it's about 18 inches too short of being effective. 
It's not reached the heart because they don't have that ability without the Holy Spirit entering into the picture. It's necessary to have that work and that drawing of the Holy Spirit. That's why even Jesus says that unless the Father draws you, you, don't, you, you won't come to me. You won't come to me. Next we see how these rest of the Gentiles, the unbelievers, they, how they're alienated. They're totally, completely separated from the life of God. And he tells us in, in, in this passage here, he says, not only because of uh, their, their darkness understanding, but because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. They have a terminal ignorance of God and his goodness. They're, they're already dead in their trespasses and sin. They're, they're ignorant of those things. And there's this blindness that's, that's in their heart, blind to all of the goodness of God and their coming judgment from God. I, I listen to uh, many times, uh, particularly scientists and, and all as they speak, and some very famous ones that are right now writing books and making big deals again of, of the reality that there is no God. And the interesting thing is they look at the same facts, they look at the same issues, they look at the same creation that you and I do, and yet they're, they're blind to the truth of, again, the, the formation and the design and the purpose of God in all of his creation. See through all of that now, the, the results of their condition, the, the results of being in the situation that they're in. Verse 19 says, they are past feelings. They've given themselves over to lewdness, to, to work all uncleanness at, with greediness. The result is that they, they become numb to any sort of type of godly morality. They have, they, they're lacking any kind of biblical worldview. And, and it saddens my heart when I see Christians who don't have a biblical world view. They, they still look at the world in a very secular way, with very secular understanding, without a strong biblical worldview of seeing how and what God is working and moving and doing in our lives today. The basis of the morality of the non-believer fluctuates with the mores of society. As society changes, a non-believer, their, their, their morals change and fluctuate with that. Situational ethics is what it's called. They, they speak that it's right in one case, it may not be right in another case, or what's wrong for you isn't necessarily wrong for me, because they don't have a standard to go by, because they're alienated from God, because their understanding is darkened, because, again, there's blindness in their hearts. All of these things we see, they give themselves over, Paul says, over to sensuality, to, to open shamefulness, a, a reckless self indulgence of the flesh in, in every sort of way, in every way that they can. And with a continual desire for more, he says, to, to work all uncleanness with greediness. There's this insatiable appetite for things of the flesh, and it never fully satisfies, so they continually desire more and more. And beloved, that is the world's condition outside of Christ, without any hope of, of eternity, the world, again, the, the mindset of, of the general portion of the world is, man, get what you can get now because that's all there is. With no true compass in their life, man travels on in a direction that's led by, is controlled by the flesh and, and all of its appetite. Never satisfied, never filled. Well, Paul warns us here in Ephesians in the next couple of verses 
again, of the responsibility now that though is ours as believers. He says, now that's how the rest of the Gentiles, that's how the non-believers live. But this is how you, as a believer, ought to be living, verses 20 through 24. Again, it's the personal responsibility that you and I have as believers. And there's two main points that he brings out here. Number one is putting off the old man, and number two is putting on the new man. And it's interesting when we look at this, this is a responsibility that you and I have. I can't just say, well, God, if you want me to be that way, then just make me that way. No, God says, no, you have a responsibility in this. You have choices that you make. We, we make choices every day of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Listen to what he says in verse 20. After he's talked about how the lost live and the choices that they make. In verse 20 he says, but you have not so learned Christ. In other words, he's saying you, you ought to be different as, as a believer. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off, take that, put off, just like a clothing, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is the same kind of renewal that he speaks about in Romans chapter 12 when he says, man, don't be conformed, don't be pressed into the jello mold of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the same thought, the same idea. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on, now, again, once again, like clothing, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness and holiness for the believer comes from a healthy and growing relationship in Christ, and a continued refilling and renewing of the Holy Spirit within the life of the believer. What Paul is speaking about here isn't just a a once-for-all thing. Well, you know, I came to Christ as a a senior in high school, and so now everything you know should be laid out, and uh, I should be making all the right choices. No, there's a continual battle. The, the, the world battles against us, draws us to itself. My, my flesh continues to scream out. And Satan himself is looking for every opportunity that he can to stumble you up. And that's why we always, always, always have to be on guard. That's why in the last of this book, in chapter 6, he speaks about having on that full armor, coming out dressed, ready for battle. And then being able to stand against everything that the enemy would throw. Beloved, because we are in that battle. And the moment that we begin to relax in our faith, to say, oh, okay, I've, I've made it now. No, that's when the enemy says, oh, oh, have we got something for you. And then the next thing you know, man, you're nowhere where you think you ought to be or where you should be as a believer. Paul speaks to us in verse 21. Again, that if indeed you've heard him and you've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. He's not doubting their salvation. He's, he's using it uh, again in just a sentence text of, of because you have it, because that is the situation with you, 
then this is the way that you ought to be living. You ought to be looking at that. And and since they had heard him, since they had been taught the right things, they ought to be changed. They ought to be continually be being changed, maturing in Christ. That's that ongoing work of sanctification. And we've spoken in the past about the sanctification of a believer. And that means that setting apart from the things of the world. When you and I come to Christ, when we make a commitment of our life to Christ, guess what, guys? We are sanctified. We are completely and totally sanctified. We are set apart from the world. We are set unto God. But you know what? Every day, we are in a sanctification process. We should be growing and moving toward righteousness and holiness in our life. It's an everyday process, and it comes, yes, by choices that you and I make. By that, again, getting rid of those old clothes and putting on those new clothes. Every day, putting off that old man, not allowing that old man to take charge and to take authority uh, over your life. You know what? I, I could wear the same pair of blue jeans probably for about maybe two weeks or so, but my wife won't let me. Blue jeans to me, it's kind of like, you know, they, they, they're just, you just put them on, and unless you're really out there working and digging and, and getting filthy on them, they, they can last for a long time. But you know what? They do get dirty. Your clothes get dirty. You change clothes. You put on a fresh set of clothes this morning to come to church. If you were wearing that same set of clothes all through the week, and you come next week, you're not going to be quite as fresh as you are today. You're not going to be quite as, as, as uh, appealing to sit next to, perhaps, as you are today. When we put on the new man today, guess what? By the end of the day, it's the old man, and it's got to be put off. And we've got to be refreshed again in the morning. Because the journey is new every morning, every day. He gives us that, that clean slate to walk in him. But we need to be prepared. We need to be ready for that. Putting off of the old, putting on the new. It's that process of growing in righteousness and growing in holiness. Now, Paul continues with, with some very practical instructions for those who are learning in their Christian life. Uh, many, even with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, these things don't come naturally. In their lives, there's battles that go on. And we need to be instructed clearly in what it means to walk in righteousness. And here Paul continues on with his instruction, verse 25. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, what a sad thing this is. To say that, you know what, I, I need to tell you not to lie. That, that Paul needs to write, and the, and the Word of God has to come for an instruction for believers. Don't lie. Speak the truth to one another. When we can't trust one another, when we can't believe one another, what a sad thing is when we look at the continued practice of, of, of a believer who's either telling uh, mistruths or, or half-truths. What was it we used to hear in, in the courtroom situations when, when, a, when a witness would come to the stand? I, I don't know how much of this was television more than real courtroom situations. But we used to hear that when you, the witness would come up to the stand, they would place their hand on the Bible. And I don't even know if they still do that anymore. But uh, yeah, they, they come and they say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth? And nothing but the truth. And even the phrase, so help you God, that used to be in there. And, but it's interesting that to tell the truth, you've got, do you swear to tell the truth? I mean the whole truth. 
Now, I mean nothing but the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That, that's how we as believers ought to be. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting there in, in Pennsylvania. They still go by a law that was back, the law of the Commonwealth, way back from 1772. And, and a general swearing in or, or uh, swearing of a witness in Pennsylvania actually goes like this. This was written in the Pittsburgh Gazette in 2006 is where I got the information. The bailiff or whoever it is that, that does the swearing in would say to the witness that you do swear by Almighty God, the searcher of all hearts, that the evidence you shall give this court in this issue now being tried shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, as you shall answer to God on that last great day. Now, any believer, you would say, absolutely, I'm going to tell the truth. But the problem is, a non-believer would say, I don't even believe in God. I'll just, I'll just say whatever I want to say. But you and I as believers, man, we ought to be brothers and sisters who, again, would speak the truth always. That when you and I would give our word or, or to tell uh, uh, something to each other, that, man, that, that's, we could take that to the bank. That we could nail that down. That is the truth because he is a truth teller. She is a truth teller. And even as we looked a, a week or two ago, speaking the truth in love. Don't forget that in love portion that's with it. We hope that today's edition of The Open Word has been a blessing to you. If you live in the Casa Grande, Arizona area, we want to invite you to join us for worship. The messages that you hear on The Open Word are produced from worship services at Calvary Chapel, Casa Grande. Maybe the teaching you heard today is exactly what you're looking for in a church. Then please join us. We have services on Saturday evenings and two Sunday morning worship services, as well as other services throughout the week. For more information about service times, including driving directions, log on to TheOpenWord.com and then follow the link to the church website. Now, we want to be sure to tell you how you can get a free copy of this teaching. Simply log on to TheOpenWord.com. Our website has today's message available for you to download. For more information about The Open Word or Calvary Chapel Casa Grande, we encourage you to log on to TheOpenWord.com. Although The Open Word teachings are always available to you free of charge, if you'd like to help support this ministry, simply log on to the website TheOpenWord.com and click on the support link to make a secure donation to this teaching ministry. Your donation can be set up as a one-time or regular scheduled tax-deductible gift. From all of us here with the production team, we want to say thank you for tuning in and may God richly bless you.